0: Tech Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English, with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 445 for May 31st, 2015. This week, sometimes you can't install a program update, and attempting the usual fix, uninstalling, doesn't work either. Microsoft has a helpful application for you. Research by Google makes it appear that many of us can't remember where we were born, but it's actually worse than that. If you have recently installed Android Lollipop on your smartphone, check your phone's data usage. In short circuits, finding a way to eat and drink where the locals do when you're traveling. And in spare parts only on the website, New Jersey and IBM work together to improve traffic flow, a new approach to internet security, and are you ready for a cannabis investor summit? tried to install a program or a program update only to be told there's a problem with the installation? If it's an update, uninstalling the application, reinstalling it, then applying the update usually resolves the problem. But what if you're also unable to uninstall the application? I ran into this problem when I was trying to install the latest version of Thumbs Plus for a review. The installer failed, then the uninstaller failed. Usually, this is caused by corruption in the registry, and Microsoft has created a utility that can resolve most of these problems. The new Fix-It utility replaces an earlier Windows Installer Cleanup utility. That utility is no longer supported. If you can't add, update, or remove a program, Microsoft recommends using this troubleshooter. Fixit supports even no longer supported operating systems such as Windows XP and Vista. It also works with Windows Server 2003 and 2003 R2, Windows Server 2008 and 2008 R2, Windows Server 2012 and 2012 R2, Windows 7 and Windows 8 and 8.1. And although it can't fix everything, it can fix a lot. For example, It can fix corrupted registry keys on 64-bit operating systems. It can fix corrupted registry keys that control update data. It can help with problems that prevent new programs from being installed. It'll help with problems that prevent existing programs from being completely uninstalled or updated. And it helps with problems that block you from uninstalling a program through the Add or Remove Programs, or Programs and Features, item in the control panel and it fixed the problem with Thumbs Plus, so you can expect a review of the latest version in the next few weeks. And I thought you might be interested in how Fix-It works. When you start the program, you'll be prompted to approve running the application with enhanced privileges. This is what allows it to modify the registry and make other needed changes. If you don't approve it, the process will simply exit. You then need to decide whether you want to allow the troubleshooter to find problems and repair whatever it finds. Microsoft recommends taking that approach. Or you can also direct the application to problems that you're aware of. That's the option I selected because I wanted the application to look at a specific problem. If you take the user-directed route, you'll need to specify whether you need help with installing or removing a program, The application will then display a list of applications that the Windows installer knows about. In this case, I selected the Visual Studio 2010 Prerequisites English. After uninstalling Visual Studio, I had noticed that the computer had problems installing and uninstalling lots of other applications, and it often referenced resources that weren't present. I used the utility to remove both of the remaining Visual Studio components on the computer. After you give FixIt the go-ahead, you'll see a list of problems that the utility has identified with the application you've pointed it at. Anything found will already be checked, and unless you have a very good reason for removing the check marks, you'll simply want to retain them and select Next. By the way, you'll find a series of images on the TechBinder Worldwide website so you can work your way through how this works. The utility will then start working, and in some cases this next step will take only a minute or two but I've seen it run for as long as half an hour, so just sit back and relax. When it completes, it'll list the problem or problems that it found and whether or not it was able to fix them. If you want to see more information about what was done, there is a View Report Details button you can click. Then you'll be asked if the troubleshooter fixed the problem, but the problem with this approach is that you won't know that the problem has been fixed until you perform additional testing, I always just select I don't know and move on. Unless you state that the problem has been resolved, though, you'll see a screen that offers additional online resources. Because in my case, the problem has been resolved, or at least I think it has, I just click Cancel and Continue. The troubleshooter can repair only one problem at a time. In this case, I wanted to remove two Visual Studio components, so I had to start the program again and run through all of the initial steps once again. For this reason, I recommend downloading the troubleshooter to your computer instead of repeatedly running it online. It'll save you a little bit of time. The bottom line, Microsoft Fix-It is free, easy to use, and functional, so it earns five cats. If you're having trouble installing or uninstalling a program, Microsoft Fixit, I think, is an excellent choice. One of its primary advantages stems from the fact that it is a Microsoft product. And who would be likely to know more about how the installer works, what can go wrong, and how to fix problems with it than Microsoft? I rest my case. You can download Microsoft Fix-It from the Microsoft website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And by the way, if you're running the technical preview of Windows 10, you will not, at this point, be able to download Microsoft Fix-It. <music> Google security researchers recently presented the results of a study that examines security questions that are employed to validate users' identities. The study raised some disturbing questions about the validity of the questions themselves. You can find the full research paper on the Google Research website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Some security systems offer a variety of data points that the user can select in these questions. It's really not surprising that few people can remember either their frequent flyer number or their library card number. But I wonder, shouldn't we all be concerned about a society in which nearly 20% of the users are unable to remember the city in which they were born? In which almost 25% couldn't remember their father's middle name? and where more than 30% were unable to recall the name of their childhood best friend, or 33% couldn't even name their high school. Really? Well, it could be that people selected the question category and then entered a nonsense word, thinking that this would make it more difficult for crooks to guess the word. In fact, the reverse is true. People can't remember bogus words that they used, And crooks are going to be more likely to be able to guess it, because we aren't very good at making up bogus responses. You may be wondering how the researchers obtained the raw data. They put it this way. As part of our constant efforts to improve account security, we analyzed hundreds of millions of secret questions and answers that had been used for millions of account recovery claims at Google. We then worked to measure the likelihood that hackers could guess the answers. The researchers concluded that secret questions are neither secure nor reliable enough to be used as a standalone account recovery mechanism. That's because they suffer from a fundamental flaw. The answers are either somewhat secure or easy to remember. Rarely are they both. What is your favorite food? And that's a question that's easily guessed by crooks with a single guess an attacker would have a nearly 20% chance of guessing an English-speaking user's answer to that question. The most common answer, by the way, is pizza. Many users had identical answers to secret questions, and that surprised researchers. Questions such as, what's your phone number, or what's your frequent flyer number, often have bogus answers. Nearly 40% of the people who select these questions provide false answers to the questions, thinking that this will make them harder to guess. Researchers say that this actually ends up backfiring because people choose the same false answers, and that actually increases the likelihood that an attacker can break in. So would adding more questions be helpful? Well, of course, it's harder to guess the right answer to two or more questions as opposed to just one. However, adding questions reduces the chance that people will be able to remember their own answers. According to the research data, the easiest question is, what city were you born in? The second easiest question is, what is your father's middle name? If these questions are asked in tandem, about 25% of users will fail to recall the right answers. The combination, though, would seriously reduce attackers' ability to provide the right answer. With 10 answers, they have about a 7% chance to get the first answer right, and about a 15% chance to get the second one. Now, if I understand the mathematics here, if the crook had 100 chances, he would have about a 0.6% chance of guessing both answers correctly. That actually seems like a pretty good choice. It doesn't substantially reduce the chances for a legitimate user, but it nearly eliminates a crook's opportunity to guess the right answer. The researchers, however, don't agree. They conclude piling on more secret questions makes it more difficult for users to recover their accounts and is not a good solution. So what is the solution? The report notes that secret questions have long been a staple of authentication and account recovery online, but that it's important for users and site owners to think twice about using them. The researchers strongly encourage Google users to make sure that their Google account recovery information is current. You can do this quickly and easily with the security checkup. For years, Google has used only security questions for account recovery as a last resort when SMS text or backup email addresses don't work. And Google never uses these as standalone proof of account ownership. In parallel, site owners should use other methods of authentication, such as backup codes sent by SMS text or sent to a secondary email address, to authenticate their users and help them regain access to their accounts. These are both safer and offer a better user experience. Because I am almost always within range of a Wi-Fi signal, and when I'm not, I rarely need data services, I signed up for the smallest possible data plan for my provider, that's 500 megabytes per month, and I rarely use even half of it. So I was a little surprised when the smartphone warned me that I had used 400 megabytes of the data plan. The phone had recently been updated to the latest version of the operating system, Lollipop, so that was naturally the first suspect. It took only a few minutes and minimal research to confirm that suspicion. In fact, cursory glance around the internet suggests that this problem is surprising a lot of people, and not surprising them in a happy way. One user who has a one gigabyte per month plan saw more than half of his data plan consumed within just a few days. After updating the operating system, one might reasonably expect that most of the installed apps will need to be upgraded too, but why are they being updated via the data plan instead of Wi-Fi? Check out some of the images that are on the TechBinder Worldwide website. I have one of a warning set at 345 megabytes, and it's clear from the graph presented there, that had my normal data usage continued until the end of the billing period, the final number would be under the warning mark and well under the limit. The acceleration occurred on the day the system was upgraded to Lollipop, and the slope of the line makes it equally clear that I would have exceeded my data plans limit more than a week before the end of the billing cycle. Initially, I misread the data value attributed to Avast's backup system and thought it was the primary culprit, even though I had told it to perform backups only when connected by Wi-Fi. In fact, that's what was happening, and everything was working just as expected with Avast backup, except for one thing, It seems that Avast has secretly mastered time travel and now plans to back up my data four days in the past. That elicited a chuckle. Maybe you're amused too. But I wanted to get back to the problem at hand, so I elected to skip an investigation into Avast's ability to make backups in the past. The data usage panel shows the amount of data each application has used during the period to date. And there it was, Android Core Apps, 125 megabytes. That is one quarter of my data plan. Amazon.com had used 42 megabytes, K9 Mail, my email application, had used 38, Google Play Services 30 megabytes, Facebook 23, Android's operating system 22, and Avast Mobile Security Backup 22. So clearly, Android is the worst offender. To see when the problem started and which application is responsible, it's possible to view each individual application's data usage by day. It showed that Facebook started using more data on the day Lollipop was installed, but that's a one-day event. There was a little blip and then nothing more. The same is true for Amazon. Probably the Amazon application needed to be updated to work properly with Lollipop. There was a brief surge of usage and then nothing more. Why, though, did it download using the data plan when my phone is connected to Wi-Fi for at least 22 hours every day, and usually 23? But be sure to check out the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website to see what the Android Core apps did. There's a surge on the day that Lollipop was installed, and that data usage just continues to increase day after day. That is unacceptable, it is extremely poor behavior, and Google should know better. There are two possible approaches to fixing the problem, other than throwing the phone into a trash can and going back to wired phones. One could be referred to as the dynamite approach, the other might be called the fly swatter approach. Both are controlled in the data usage section of the control panel. The dynamite approach, there's an option to restrict background data, turn off all or virtually all background data transfer via the data plan. That would penalize well-behaved applications in addition to curtailing data use, That's probably the first option most people will see, but I think it's kind of a bad choice. I selected the flyswatter approach. Nearly every application has settings either within its own properties panel or in the data usage section of the control panel where background data transfer can be turned off. The worst actor was Android itself. Hey, thanks, Google. So that's where I concentrated the flyswatter. There is no reason why Android core apps should be consuming data plan resources when the phone is within range of a Wi-Fi signal 23 hours almost every day. The same is true for all of the other services. I don't need email or Facebook when I'm driving. Backups are supposed to happen only when the phone is connected via Wi-Fi. I've downloaded one small book from Amazon recently, but hardly 42 megabytes. And the Play Store usage probably represents updates. But again, why are these being conducted via the data plan? I scrolled through each of the applications and selected restrict background data. I'll probably roll that back and retain the restriction only for the badly behaved Android core apps. This change appears to have staunched the bleeding of data. Usage has leveled off and it looks like I'll finish the month with some of the data plan to spare. In short circuits, technology can come to the rescue for those who prefer to eat and drink in the places locals patronize when they're traveling. Finding those places is usually a problem, and I always feel sad when somebody explains that they've gone to New York and ate only at chain restaurants when they were there. Localier might be able to help, but only if you have an Apple phone or tablet. No Android version yet exists. Travelers who are looking for authentic local experiences may already have Localier on their device, but a new version expands the application. Co-founder Chase White says version 2.3 builds on the application's first two years, in which it built a foundation of recommendations from millennial locals. So I wonder if that means that boomers and Gen Xers can't use the application. Says Chase White, travel will never be the same. That might be a little bit of hyperbole. The app has more than 6,000 recommendations for places to eat, drink, and play in 14 cities. Atlanta, Austin, Chicago, Dallas, Denver, Houston, Los Angeles, Miami, New Orleans, New York City, Portland, San Francisco, Seattle, and Washington. Local year now has about 500,000 users, and that represents a 500% growth just since the beginning of the year. The application was introduced in 2013 at South by Southwest in Austin, It was named the year's best new startup by Austin Monthly subscribers, and you'll find the application, if you're interested, in the Apple Store. And whether you're interested or not, you'll find spare parts on the TechBiter Worldwide website, New Jersey and IBM work together to improve traffic flow, a new approach to internet security, and are you ready for a cannabis investor summit?